Hey, good morning. Welcome to the gathering of Church 21. My name is Dwight Bernier, one of the pastors here at Church 21. Uh, so glad to be gathering with you in this way virtually. I can't wait till we can be back together again. Hopefully that'll be soon, but we'll see. So uh, we're going to be starting a new series this morning, Romans 8, Undeservingly Enabled. That's a mouthful, Undeservingly Enabled. See how many times I can mess that up during the course of, of this sermon series. Uh, we'll be spending July and August actually in this one chapter of the Bible. So let me pray for us and then we'll get going. Lord, thank you that you are a great God, that you love us. Thank you for the truths that you have written and that you're going to unpack for us during this series. Help us to be reassured that we truly are enabled by you and, and remind us that it's by nothing that we have done. We don't deserve this. It truly is undeservingly enabled that we receive. So we love you and we need you for everything. Amen. Uh, so we're going to be in Romans 8 for, for a couple months. I, I want to encourage you to memorize Romans 8. It's, it's not that long, 39 verses. You can do it. Uh, you have two months to do it. Uh, if you're going to sink a significant part of Scripture into your heart, I think that this would be a really good piece to put in there. Uh, I want to encourage you to gather with other people as well. Uh, we did this last week, and it was phenomenal. Uh, we got to enjoy uh, fun with other people. We got to enjoy a meal. We got to talk about the issues surrounding uh, the subject that we spoke about last week. So it was it was very encouraging for us. So I want to encourage you as you're able uh, to, to be able to uh, gather with other people. So Romans 8, we're just going to start with, with verse number one. Before we do that, uh, let me remind you of what happened on July 20th, 1969. Uh, most of us probably were not alive. Uh, those of you who were, uh, blessings to you. On July 20th, 1969, we landed on the moon. Humanity put its footprint onto the moon. Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin uh, were, were successful in their mission. And just a few weeks ago, uh, NASA and SpaceX combined their resources to be able to send people back into space. And, and they're hoping that this is the first of many missions and somehow want to normalize uh, living in space. And I don't know if that will take or not. But we, as humanity, somehow want to be in space. One of the most horrific places that you could want to be, like lots of people die going to space, and yet we want to be there. Now, let me just make it really, really clear. We should not be in space. We were not made to be in space. Nothing about space and our bodies match up. But the way that we do it is that we enable ourselves by taking resources from the earth and bringing them up there. That's why people are searching for water or wondering if water or other life is somewhere else. Because if we could become more like that life or depend on resources in other places like on Mars, then maybe we might have a shot of being in a new place. But without help in space, we die. Without help, we die. This is what this is really trying to illustrate. I'm sorry I couldn't find a Canadian flag on some sort of astronaut. So we just have this. But this is pretty good. This is what this illustrates is this person out in space is fully enabled to be there by resources that are not their own. Now, they probably earned their way there. They didn't win a lottery and just get shot up into space. It's not what happened. So it's not undeservingly enabled. They earned their way to be there, but yet at the same time, they shouldn't be there. 
They shouldn't be there, but yet they're there. And this is kind of what Romans 8 is like. It's like that. That we exist as undeservingly enabled in our world. You got to hear that. We exist, for those who are followers of Jesus, we exist as undeservingly enabled in our world. That we are living out the supernatural every single day. And you might not feel that way. You might feel like today is just a normal Sunday, gathering with people, not really all that different than what I experienced last week. But yet every single day is a supernatural reality that you and I should not have. This is what Romans 8 is going to talk all about. My favorite chapter in the Bible. It's been called the Great Eight. And it's in the middle of one of the most important pieces of literature ever written. Not just the Bible, but Romans. The letter from Paul to the church at Rome. Now, I already gave away who the author is, Paul. I'm just going to do a little bit of background this morning. Um, This will carry us throughout the series uh, because we're not going to look at all of Romans. We're just going to be focused in on Romans chapter 8. Romans was a letter that was written by Paul to the church at Rome, probably around 55 AD. Uh, Paul was probably in Corinth, like almost positively he was in Corinth city, cool, hip, urban, trendy, like Montreal, when he wrote this uh, letter to the Romans, and and he would have sent it along. But here's the thing. Paul didn't know the Roman church. Paul didn't plant the Roman church. Paul hadn't been to Rome. He knew people who were in the Roman church. He knew of the Roman church, but he he wasn't responsible for planting this work. So why write a masterpiece to this unknown church? And real quick, there's five reasons. And I'm just bringing you up to speed with what's going on with Romans. And here's the first reason, is to let them know. He wanted to let the church at Rome know that he was planning to visit them and to prepare the way for him to be there. So like, get, get the bed ready. Where am I going to be staying? Paul relied on hospitality a lot everywhere he went. Um, he was a tent maker, yes, but it's very hard to set up a business when you're always moving around. So the fact that Paul's a tent maker, yes, absolutely he was, but that wasn't the main thing that he was doing all the time. He relied on the hospitality of the the church. So prepare the way. So he's writing a letter to them about that. Second thing is to assure the Roman church of his gospel message and theological position. Like, hey, I'm not a wingnut. I'm not a theological heretic. Uh, This is what I'm on about. So it's kind of like his resume, his theological resume. Third is that he wanted to secure the support of the Roman Christians for a Spanish mission. Paul planned to move beyond Rome and to keep going. And so as he was meeting people along the way, he needed to find other people that would support his ministry. So this is a third reason. Fourth reason is that he was seeking the prayers of the Romans. He knew that his ministry and the ministry of the church has no power without prayer. And so Paul wanted to get not just financial support to help him get to Spain where he could proclaim the gospel there, but also that people would be praying for him. Uh, My wife and I, our family, we live on support. We actually don't take any money from the church whatsoever. And in the early days, we lived completely on support. And so it was other people that paid for us and prayed for us to be in Montreal planting churches. And this is what Paul was on about. And the last thing, the fifth thing, is that Paul wanted to share his apostolic gift with the larger church. That he was a a big A 
apostle. He was part of, of this, this very small group of, of people that were responsible for building the church, writing scripture, laying the foundation of Christ and, and building on that. So he was sharing his apostolic gift with the larger church. Now, we can't travel through all of Romans 1 to 7. I would encourage you to read that to get better context. Um, But it's impossible for us to tour around Romans 8 like we're going to without going back to visit Romans 1 to 7 and going forward even to visit what's coming in the future weeks and beyond that in Romans 9 to 16. So that's a little backdrop to what's going on in Romans And so when we arrive at Romans chapter 8, we're met with this question. What can God do for sinners like us fighting but too often failing? Now let me me say something before I get to this question. Number one, we're using the Bible. Um, I'm going to be preaching out of the Christian Standard uh, Bible. We've been using the English Standard Version uh, for a long time in my preaching. I've just, I've really enjoyed Christian Standard Bible over the past six or seven months. There's a number of translations you can use that are really good, but uh, all the scripture that's going to be up here is going to be from that version during this series. Um, We believe that the Bible is true. You might be watching this being like, I'm not sure if the Bible is true. And I would just say, I'm so glad that you're with us. And I would love to dialogue with you more around your questions as to uh, the sufficiency of scripture. Did, did, Did God write this? Did people write this? How did this all come together? How can I trust this? Is it reliable? I would love to talk to you about all of these things. But I just want you to know that we're, we're, taking from the Bible. We love to go verse by verse through the Bible as much as possible, so we're not bringing our agenda, but we're hearing God's agenda actually come out. And we're going to talk a lot about Jesus. We're going to make mention of the words like sin, sinner, and you might feel, I don't know if I like that. That's like an S word for me. And yet, we're going to unpack this. We're not just going to leave the terms loaded there on the table. We're going we're to unpack them and look at what they, what they really mean. But here's the driving questions of driving question of Romans 8 is what can God do for sinners like us fighting but too often failing? See, to be, to be a sinner is to be someone that rebels against God. It's, it's missing the mark. It's having a heart that wants anything but God or something other than God. And not just um, all the time, like I, I'm an atheist, but even some of the time or once in a while, When our heart goes there, it it makes us a sinner. It puts us in an unrighteous category. And so what can God do for for people like us in this unrighteous category that fight but too often fail? And so I'm just going to go to chapter 8, verse 1. And we're going to dissect this. Okay, So, so let me read it for us. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. There. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So what I want to look at is two phrases in here, in Christ and then no condemnation. So I'm just going to leave this verse up here. This is God's word for us this morning. So in Christ, this is a positional reality that the theological term would be union with Christ, that we are in Christ. This isn't a fanboy or fangirl endeavor. It's not that we're following Jesus like we follow a sports team. When they're, they're doing well, we really love them. When they're not, we're not so excited. Um, it's not that at all. Jesus isn't an, an, an add-on that we have a phone and we put a Jesus app on there 
But the, the phone existed before without Jesus. We're just putting him into our life. We're not just giving him a little sliver. When we become a follower of Jesus, we move into Christ. We move into Christ. This is a place. Now, you might be in, in a different place this morning. You might just be hearing about him. Maybe you're hearing about him for the first time. I don't know. Maybe you've heard about him before, but you're not quite sure that what you heard is truly accurate. So, so you're listening intently. Who is this Jesus? And I would just say that Jesus is here, but he's also with you. That because we're not gathered together, it doesn't mean that Jesus has to hang out at our house and can't be with, with you where you're at. That Jesus is, is unlocked at this moment from, from place. That he's omnipresent. And so Jesus is with you. And so maybe you're hearing about him. Maybe you've moved beyond hearing and you're now exploring him. You're reading books about him and you're really digging hard to figure out, can I trust this Jesus? And you're exploring who he is and what he's done. Maybe you've begun hanging around him and hanging around his people. So you don't really believe the same things that we believe as a church, but you like being around because, well, you like the community and that's great. But you like the one that the community is all about, you think. But you're not fully ready to commit yourself to him yet. So it moves from hearing about him, exploring him, hanging around, and then being with. Like, I'm going to track with you, Jesus. Like, I'm going to walk with you hardcore. I'm not fully committed myself yet. But I'm pretty much ready. And then that last stage is where you move in. Like you move into him. We see this trajectory in the book of John, another book in the New Testament, where it was like, come and see. Jesus was calling people, come and see, come and see. And the followers of Jesus were saying, come and see. And then Jesus gets to this reality where he says, abide in me. Abide in me, move into me. I am this this city that you can move into. And when you move into Jesus, it means that we lose control. When you move to a new country or new city, province, state, wherever you're going, you lose control in a sense. Like you're now under the authority of the governing bodies of that place. And this is what happens when we move into Christ. It means that we lose control. This is, what, this is why he can't just be an add-on because we lose control over everything. He takes over He always, during Jesus's life, he was always encouraging people to really count the cost of what it means to follow him. Not just to come along because it's cool, trendy, because this is going to cost you your life. You're going to lose control. Jesus said uh, things that are a bit strange. He said, you're going to have to eat my flesh and drink my blood if you want to be a follower of me. Now, it wasn't mean that Jesus was calling a, a cannibalistic culture into play. Rather, he, he would demonstrate that later when he took bread and broke it and, and wine. And he was sharing that and saying, this is a symbol of my body. Take and eat in remembrance of me. And this is a symbol of my blood that would be shed for you. Drink in remembrance of me. But here's the thing. When we take food and drink, as soon as you put it into your body, you lose control over it. That's why if you have poison, they want you to vomit it up. But as soon as something goes into your body, you lose control. Your body starts to be a slave in a sense to what just got put in. It it responds to the chemicals that just went into it. When Jesus, when we move into him, he takes over. He takes over. There's no dual citizenship. 
It's not I spent half the time out of Jesus and half the time in him. It's a new allegiance. And there's this beautiful new banner that's put up. This new flag gets put up the, the pole of our life. That's my best flag movement in this moment. This new flag gets flown over our life. This banner gets put over our life. And here it is. There is now no condemnation. No condemnation for those who are in Christ. Now this term condemnation is a forensic term and it carries the idea of both the sentence and execution. So the sentencing for condemnation and the execution of being condemned. So we have to ask the question, well, who does the condemning? Who condemns? There are two answers to this. We did and God does. So this is where we're gonna go back and we're gonna visit Romans 1 to 7. We're gonna do it pretty fast. So if you didn't track with all of this, I'm so sorry, but I'm trying to go as quickly as I can uh, to show us this reality that there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. But who, who condemns? We did and God does. So here's, here's the story of the Bible. God made us for life. He made us for, to be MVPs. Now, not that we're the most valuable player, he is, but he made us in his story to have meaning, value, and purpose. So he gives us this MVP identity to be vice regents with him, to to rule and reign alongside of him, like him, but yet truly under him as he is our, our chief authority in God. And he wanted us to live. He didn't make us so that we die. He didn't make us so that we'd suffer. He made us to live and he gave a commandment to humanity so that we'd remain alive, but also that we would keep demonstrating that we trust and we love him. That God didn't want to make robots, So God gives a command so that we would live, but also that we would demonstrate that we love and we trust him. But here's what happened. We tried to be gods. It wasn't enough that we were made like God. We wanted to be above God, or at least as equal, that there would be multiple gods. We would turn this from a monotheism into a polytheism, and we would be at the the deity table with God, putting our, our opinion and our agenda on the table. Look at what Romans 1, 25 has to say. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. This is what happened when, when the first humans, our first parents were in the garden. We, we exchanged what was true for a lie. We worshiped creation instead of the creator. And so in that moment, we condemned ourselves. God said, if you do this, you will die spiritually, eternally, in every way, you will die. But we were the ones that made the choice. We were the ones that brought condemnation ourselves. And so we love to blame God. If God is so good, then why is this happening? If God is so gracious, then why do these things take place? If God is really powerful, how can these things be transpiring in the world? But God's not the problem. God's not the problem. God promised life. We chose condemnation. So we are actually the problem. And God is just following through like a good parent does. Uh, Once in a while, confession time. Once in a while, we will threaten discipline upon our children. And then when they do that thing, we don't follow through because it's like, ah, it's actually harder for us. That's a bad parent moment, right? You have to follow through. Parenting one-on-one, follow through on what you say you're going to do. Unless it's horrible. Don't follow through on that. But God follows through. Romans 1.18, for God's wrath 
is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That God's wrath, his anger is against unrighteousness, godlessness, and suppression of the truth. And so God's wrath is, is focused in on us, his humanity, those who are to be condemned. And our hearts, instead of growing softer, they've grown harder. They've grown harder. Look what Romans 1, 18 uh, 28 to 32 has to say. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do what is not right. They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Have you ever thought that you would see murder and disobedient to parents in the same list. Like this is the way that God views unrighteousness. It's not the, the big sins. It's every sin is big. Senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Although they know God's just sentence, condemnation, that those who practice such thing deserve to die. They not only do them, but they even applaud others who practice them. So not only do we do these things, but we applaud those who practice them. We're not growing softer, we're growing harder. So you see this trajectory from we can be with God, like God, under him, to now wanting to say there is no God. God is wicked, he's evil. You don't want to be near him if he exists. You don't want to be like him if he exists. God does this, so let's create our own society. Let's do our own thing for our own glory. And here's what, what Paul writes in Romans 3, right? We're, we're taking this tour around Romans 1 to 7. In Romans 3, 9 to 18, Paul writes, What then? Are we any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. By the way, Jews and Greeks means all humanity. Everyone is under sin. As it is written, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. Some people say that they struggle to to read the Bible or understand the Bible. These verses are really, really easy. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. So kids, kids watching, how many good people are there? None. There's none. Let's keep going. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Viper's venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. They don't revere God. We don't revere God whatsoever. For all have sinned. This is the big statement. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of of God. Everyone is under sin. Everyone is sinful. He goes on to say in verse 6 that we're ungodly. And he says in verse 10 that we're enemies. Ungodly enemies. And that we earned our condemnation. The wages of sin is death. We earned our execution notice. We earned our death. But then we get to the place with oh man, maybe religion, maybe if we were good boys and girls, maybe religion could take away the penalty. 
Look at what Paul says in Romans 7, verse 12. So the, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. So we think, if I can just keep all the rules and I can show God what a good boy or good girl I am and then God will be pleased and applaud that even though I did some of those bad things, I was disobedient to parents, I murdered a few people there, but like I gave some money, I helped some, some older people across the street, I was fighting for, for justice in these situations. So God, you must let me in because I, I kept the law. I kept the law. But here's what Paul said. Paul was a good, devout Jew who became a follower of Jesus as his Messiah, became part of the people of God. Look what Paul says. What a wretched man I am. He probably kept the law better than any of us ever could. And yet he says, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? We can't keep the law. We can't. We're constantly and authentically living a hypocritical existence. Do you understand that? Constantly and authentically living a hypocritical existence. Before knowing Jesus, this is our banner. This is our flag. Constantly and authentically. I'm pulling that flag up again. Constantly and authentically, hypocritical existence. That's me. That is me. The things I tell you not to do, outwardly, I do inside my house. The thing I shame people for in close quarters, I approve of. Look at what Paul says in Romans 7, 18 through 20. I know, for I know that nothing good lives in me. That is in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there's no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now, if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one that does it, but it is a sin that lives in me. What a frustrating thing. This is our journey, doing what I don't want to do and and not doing what I want to do. Have you ever tried to really obey? I remember being in secondary school saying, you know what, I'd like to try and be a Christian. I just tried to not say some bad words and that lasted like a day maybe. And I just decided, you know what, I could never be a Christian because I can't do the things that I know I should be doing. That's what I thought it meant to be a follower of Jesus. You see, religion and the law can't work. God didn't set up religion for the best because if he did, even the best, even Paul, couldn't keep the law. He was unrighteous on on the basis of his works. But here's the good news. Remember that banner is no condemnation? Here's the good news. Let's go to Romans 8 verse 3. What the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh. The law was good. The law was good, but it was weakened by us because we couldn't do it. So the law seems bad, but it's very good. For what the law couldn't do, since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. And look what he did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering. Here's the good news, is that God sends his son. And let me point out two things. He sends him in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now, some people have pointed out, oh, well, since the body is bad, the flesh is bad, then Jesus being in the flesh means that he was bad. His body was bad, but his spirit was good. Listen to what John Stopp, theologian, says, "Not, not in sinful flesh, 
because the flesh of Jesus was sinless. Nor in the likeness of flesh, because the flesh of Jesus was real. But in the likeness of sinful flesh, because the flesh of Jesus was both sinless and real. That Paul chose his words very specifically to show that Jesus was both fully God and fully man. And that he lived like us. He lived like us a life in the flesh, but he lived differently. So he lived a life in and yet for God. So he lived like us and lived differently than us, but he did all that for us. He did that as our representative. And he came to condemn sin. He came to condemn sin. Remember Romans 1.18? God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness, unrighteousness, sin. He condemned this sin. The wrath of God was against sin and sinners. And as Jesus getting to the end of his life, goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and says, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. But, but if we have to do this this way, Father, then, then I'm in. Your will be done. Jesus knew that cup of wrath that he was going to take and drink was a staggering cup. And on the cross, Jesus took this cup of the wrath of God that was pointed at us, that was aimed for us to drink. And Jesus drank it, not leaving a drop for us. 2 Corinthians, another letter that Paul wrote. He writes, He made the one who did not know sin, Jesus, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, the law of sin and death condemned us. If you were to stand before God and he looked at the law in your life, he would just say condemned, real quick. He wouldn't have to look far down the list. But if he looks at you now, if you've submitted to Christ, He says, innocent, righteous. Why? Because Jesus took your condemnation. And since Jesus took our condemnation, there's none left to take. You don't share in the condemnation of Jesus. He took it all. He took all of your condemnation. And now the big banner over our lives is this, no condemnation. No condemnation. No condemnation. We struggle to believe this. But listen to what Ray Ortland Jr. says in his commentary on Romans 8. No condemnation for you, none at all. Not because your behavior is so Christian, but because your Savior is Christ. No condemnation, not because of what a good Christian you are, but because your Savior is Christ. And do you know what we get because of Christ? We get no condemnation, but we also get eternal life. We get that MVP back, that value, meaning, and purpose. Listen to what Romans 6, we're going back to Romans 6 for a second. Verse 23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Like this should get at us. This should cause us to celebrate and freak out a little bit. This should get you moving on your couch as you're interacting with this this live stream, right? And we get to walk out this eternal life now. Romans 8, verse 4. This is the end of our text. In order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now we're going to unpack this next week. We'll be looking at verses 5 to 11, and we'll bring verse 4 into that. But we get to walk out this life of the Spirit now. You see, the divine purpose is that the law of the Spirit 
would cause for us to live liberated lives. That God wants for you and I, he wants for us to live sinless lives, but he knows we're going to sin. But he wants for us to live liberated lives, lives that are free from condemnation. The Spirit wants for you to lift up your eyes. He wants for you to lift up your eyes. Listen to this. Ray Ortland again. The reason Christians do not glorify and enjoy God more is that they do not look beyond themselves. They look into themselves, finding either demoralizing failure or far worse, an illusion of success. They live in either self-hatred or self-admiration. But either way, they're bound up within themselves with far too little certainty and joy. But the gospel, the good news of Jesus emphasizes what God does. God, in all the fullness of his being, for all the need that you have. And that is encouraging. That is encouraging. The Spirit wants to, to lift your eyes off of yourself and on to Christ. Lift your eyes up. Because when you lift your eyes up and you focus on Christ, who is there to condemn you? If God declares no condemnation, why do you look back to the abuser? Why do you look back to the voices? Listen to Romans 8, 34. Who is the one who condemns? We're gonna get to this at the end of this series, but let me, let me give this. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. So Jesus died for our sin and our condemnation, but he rises from the dead to give us hope. And if he's not condemning us, then who is left to condemn You, as a follower of Jesus, are uncondemnable. Do you get that? If that moves in your heart, life is going to change. You start to walk and breathe differently. The things that you were carrying on your shoulders start to be free and released. You are uncondemnable. Nothing or no one ever has any right to ever place condemnation upon you when Jesus has removed it. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are clean. But here's the deal. Voices of condemnation are going to come back. And this is where we apply this. Voices of condemnation will come. We have a real enemy, don't we? We believe that Satan is real, the Satan, this real enemy of God. And what we see in Zechariah 3, I would encourage you to read this at your leisure. But Zechariah 3 is this picture of Satan standing before the high priest and the high priest's clothes are are just, kids, you'll love this word. They have poop all over them, right? There's fecal matter all over this priest. Now that is abhorrent. A, a priest should, should be wearing clean clothes to minister, but he's wearing these. And Satan is standing there to accuse the priest before God. And as he's accusing him, God says, shut up. Be quiet, Satan. And God, angel of the Lord, pre-incarnate Jesus, orders that clean robes be brought to be put on this priest. Why? Because the angel of the Lord who is coming would die for the sins that should cause for that priest to stand there in filthy robes. Jesus was coming to take what that priest had done onto himself that Jesus would put on those filthy rags and he would die on the cross so that we could be clothed in white. So when Satan comes, listen to what Martin Luther says. 
When the devil throws your sins in your face and declares you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, son of God. And where he is there, I shall be also. When, when, the, when Satan tells you how bad you are, it's like, yeah, but I'm far worse than that. And you know that. But we also know that I carry no condemnation at all because Jesus already paid for it. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Satan is going to come with voices of condemnation. You can shut him up. We're, we're no help, are we? We have our own voices of condemnation that exist in us. And you know your struggles. You know your struggles. And I guarantee you've asked the question, well, how bad is too bad? How much is too much? This all sounds good, but when will I receive the con- condemnation flag again over my life? We often get really down on ourselves. Here's my encouragement, is that you would be preachers and not listeners to yourself. You would preach to your heart, that you would preach these truths. Soul, there's no condemnation for you. I don't care that the fact that you just did that thing or you want to do that thing and that's disgusting, but there's no condemnation. That feeling, that desire is not who you are. You are beloved of God. There's no condemnation at all for you. Listen to what Ray Ortland says. I feel like I've quoted him a lot this morning. Do not think I have God's spirit, but I also have problems. So what difference does the spirit make? Instead, think I have problems, but I also have the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I have hope. Start thinking that way. I know I have problems, but I also have the Holy Spirit. So I have lots of hope. And you need others to come around you and remind you that there's no condemnation for you in this life. No matter what you do, do you realize how freeing that is? And so many people will say, well, if you give people that freedom, that grace, then they're going to abuse it. And it's like, no, if you let people taste really good food, they're gonna have a hard time going back to to food. That's not so good. If you give people the best, they're not gonna go back and eat mud pies. So the grace of God is meant to woo you in. This is the, the finest course meal substance that you can imagine. And God is saying, partake of this. Get used to this diet and you won't want those other things. There are also voices of co- condemnation that will come from society. We, we heard the interview earlier around social media and what a hostile place social media can be, but what a good place it can be as well. But in our society, we have this thing called cancel culture that will just cancel you from culture if you do certain things that we as a culture deem are too bad for you to keep having influence upon us. And this happens with Christians as well. And not just that you would lose your reputation, but sometimes that you would lose your life. But listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 5. You're blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You see, they don't see the real you. They don't see the spirit of God necessarily in you, transforming you to be just like Jesus. Listen to what C.S. Lewis said in The Weight of Glory. The dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. God is making you to be just like Jesus. He's not making you God the Son, but he's making you to be just like Jesus They don't see the real you. Society doesn't see what's really going on inside of you. 
It's hard for them to understand. But as we're living out his plan, his kingdom is attractive, but it'll also be offensive. And I would say as people try and cancel you, don't cancel them. Don't cancel the people that want you gone because the gospel says that because we've been forgiven so much, we can now forgive so much. Everything ultimately was against Jesus. You might have to work through some issues to be able to forgive people, but you can move toward them in love. Good boundaries, of course, but in love. You're free to do that. And then finally, don't, don't push down the voice of the Spirit. This is what he says. This is what he says. There is no condemnation for you this morning or ever. And I wanted to put this up this whole time I was saying this. This is not too good to be true. This is not too good to be true. This is our reality. You see, the natural is being replaced by the supernatural. There's nothing left to to add to the work of Jesus. The condemnation that Jesus took was left inside of that tomb. And we are really free. You're that free right now because of what he has done. My last Ray Ortland quote is this. No condemnation for sinning, struggling Christians who yearn to be rescued from their Romans 7 frustration and failure. Christian, follower of Jesus, the banner over you this morning is no condemnation. No condemnation. Don't let anyone bewitch you and send you back to a different gospel. Though you still sin, don't let anyone, including your own heart, smush your face in that. Let the Spirit of God pick your face up from the muck and the mire and see Jesus who paid for your sin and who is alive and who says, I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. So over the next two weeks, we're gonna see the liberating work of the Spirit. But this morning, celebrate this celebrate that the fact that there's no condemnation. This is the good news that our city needs, isn't it? The fact that there's no condemnation for those who will submit to King Jesus because a city with no condemnation exists right now in the middle of the city of Montreal. And the good news is that all are welcome. And the worse you know you are, the, the more welcome you are. Jesus hung out with all the people who should never get the banner of no condemnation over their lives. And he says, I want to give you a new reality. So tomorrow morning when you wake up, it's like, how do we apply this? Tomorrow morning when you wake up, first thing, say, Spirit, would you remind me of the banner over my life? And he will say, no condemnation. You wake up in the morning, like like pulling that, that, that slobber off your face, the, the eye boogers out of your eye. It's like a glorious picture of the morning. And the spirit is saying, look, no condemnation. No condemnation for you this morning. You are free. You are free. If you are not a follower of Jesus, you can do that right now. Jesus paid for you and Jesus wants for you to walk this new path of no condemnation and he's alive and active and wants to help you. So you could even pray right now and say, Jesus, I need you. Forgive me for all of my sin. Rescue me, transform me. I wanna follow you and he will. And let us know and we'd love to follow up with you. But follower of Jesus this morning, no condemnation for you. So what we're gonna do now is, is we have a few announcements and then we'll be sent out. And I wanna encourage you to be gathering in groups because we're gonna have discussion time after 
uh, our, our services done. We want for you to unpack this. So the, the questions that we're going to be looking at uh, is this. What voices of condemnation do you hear? I gave you big categories, Satan, self, society. But what specific, what specific voices of condemnation do you hear? And then the second question is, how does the gospel silence and replace those voices? So what voices do you hear? And how does the gospel silence and replace these voices? Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you are here, you are with us. Thank you that your banner over us is no condemnation. We need that. Tomorrow morning when we wake up, Spirit, would you yell that in our lives? No condemnation for this person in Christ. Would you help us to apply this well to our life? Would you help us be bold as we share this message with with people in the city this week? We love you and we need you for everything. Amen.